Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Hi, welcome to the Kudzu Vine for December 9, 2018. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Joining me as always, welcome Catherine Smith. Greetings from Atlanta. And welcome Tim Shiflett. Good evening, sir. Oh, good to have y'all back on this uh, dreary, dreary day. And I'm excited to be on. Coming on a little early if you're trying to find us live or we just popped up because you like to listen to Blog Talk Radio at 5.30 in the afternoon instead of 7. But we're excited about our guest coming up 30 minutes into the show uh, from North Carolina, Dr. Michael Bitzer. He's been on before, but North Carolina certainly has a lot to talk about. And Dr. Bitzer is going to be on right on top of that and he's going to inform us about several things going on in the state and in the news um, but until then, we're going to drive up a little further um, up the interstate and talk about national affairs emanating from Washington. And my, what a fascinating uh, week it has been. Some of this probably even started coming out two weeks ago, but it just keeps on and keeps on and keeps on um, coming out little by little from the Robert Mueller investigation. Uh, Tim, tell us what you, you know, kind of what uh, you found so far. Well, you can now see for the first time that Robert Mueller, how he, with these bits and pieces that's coming out, you can see how he's putting this thing together. And uh, there seems to be a two-pronged attack, clear, clear now, and it involves a lot of the same people in both prongs, and one prong is uh, crimes that were committed that were uh, not the specific part of the campaign, Uh, crimes that have been discovered as part of the discovery process. Um, And this has uh, swept up a lot of people into it. And then we're talking about crimes committed in the campaign. Those are starting to come forth now. And the... um, Stuff that happened Friday, especially with Cohen, was extremely damaging to the administration. Uh, Mueller seems to be going about his job getting closer and closer. We can we we really can see how he's building the case now. Um, and where I did believe that somehow Trump might be able to just sit it out and skate through or somehow talk this investigation out of existence, belittle it in some, I, I, I don't believe he's going to, he's, he's going to be able to do that. Now uh, we now are beginning to see direct evidence that this campaign and perhaps the president himself was involved uh, with the Russians. And we certainly uh, saw direct evidence now that the president ordered uh, Cohen to uh, disperse these payments, this hush money, 
to, uh, you know, this couple of women to keep them quiet right before the election. That in itself is very damning. And I just don't see how even the most ardent Trump supporter now can say that there's just nothing directly connecting the president to any crimes. Yeah, Catherine, there's been four people, um, and Tim obviously mentioned uh, Michael Cohen, but also Michael Flynn, uh, George Papadopoulos, and Paul Manafort. That This investigation has been, I guess, publicly centered around, obviously, the Trump family uh, or some more uh, folks um, indicated, too. Which of these four people or in ranking or whatever you want to say, which of them are going to be the most damning um, and most helpful to the case for Robert Mueller? Oh, boy, that's that's tough because I think there may be <clears throat> additional people that we don't know about yet. Um, it seems like Cohen and Manafort, Manafort already, um, seems like most of his stuff has been, most of his revelations have been recognized already and it's hard for me to say, but they're, they're all certainly um, providing some illuminating information. And um, I don't know how I don't know how our president can continue to say things like, you know, I, I, I'm I'm got, I, I've been, you know, completely. What did he say this weekend? No, no collusion and. Uh, it cleared my name or something like what are you, you can't even <laughs> it's like what it's, it's not what happened but uh it's so hard to I, I don't know I he's living in some different dimension or something but uh I think they're all providing some damaging information and I think there's still more to come so it'll be interesting to see how what what comes what comes next yeah, and Catherine, I think you were looking for the word exonerated, but you knew that Donald Trump didn't know such a big word, so you wanted yeah, to I don't use remember it what he knew it was the perfect word, but you knew he couldn't use it. Um, and so speaking of that tweet, Catherine, what was he trying to gain there? Any any clue? Oh, I don't – I think he was trying to gain his base. You know, they, they believe what he says, so – and I, I, you know, I don't watch Fox News. I don't know if they've been trying to spin that too, so that they can rest assured that, so that his base can rest assured that, you know, he didn't do anything wrong, or whatever he did wrong was mm. inconsequential. I think right. He, he uses Twitter to no filter to speak directly to the people, even when it's just total and utter nonsense. And the rest of the world kind of mocks him for it. Uh, Tim, Paul, Paul Manafort, he testified early on, but then he apparently became kind of like what they were saying, a double agent and would tell uh, folks oh, involved in the Trump yeah. circle or lawyers about what went on. And he's been um, back uh, put into custody again. Uh, what's going on, Paul well. Manafort? Well, what we see here is that Bob Mueller uh, caught him lying after he agreed to work with the investigation uh, to give them some 
you know, good stuff to try to get out of as much jail time as he could. And what this has shown us is this. Um, Bob Mueller is right on top of his game. He, I mean, he, he has caught this man lying, and he has methodically in court laid out facts as to why he knows this. And we see the difference in what is about to happen to him and what has happened with, uh, say, General Flynn, who has been a very cooperative witness and who, uh, you know, the investigation has recommended no jail time for him. And Manafort is probably going to wind up in jail maybe for the rest of his life, at least for the next 10 years. So it... If anyone thinks that Bob Mueller doesn't know what he's doing, that he doesn't have his ducks in a row, that he hasn't compiled his facts and figures, no, this man is putting together an airtight investigation. That's why I say once this all comes out, even the most ardent Trump supporter is going to have a tough time dismissing it as, you know, what Trump said, a fantasy and a witch hunt, you know, uh, Trump has created this, what, alternative reality. Yeah. Um, and, and all of his people are, are shooting off the talking points uh, along with several questionable media outlets and the president himself. And... uh you know what? Nothing has stopped it. He said, I have nothing to do with Russia. No deals, no loans, no nothing. That was Trump one week before he took office. Well, the Trump Tower Moscow deal, uh, it shows how big a lie that was. Uh, what, what can Trump now do? Look, cornered presidents will lash out, act in some way. I saw Richard Nixon do it with the Saturday Night Massacre when he was cornered. If someone in the Trump family is charged, I believe that's where Trump's going to strike. What would he have to lose at that point? If they get to him, what would he have to lose by just picking up the phone and ordering whoever his attorney general is, okay, shut the investigation down and fire everybody? What would he have to lose? Now, my question is, and we speculated this about this before, if he does that, doesn't Congress – and we're not talking about the Senate, but we're talking about Congress – doesn't Congress have the power to then reopen an investigation as a check and balance they can. on the executive branch? They can. they can, but you've got a divided Congress. You're going to have a House doing it, and the Senate's not doing it, and people are going to say the House is doing it. Because it's partisan, Democrat, blah, 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 blah. Yep, exactly. Uh, but, but isn't the one that so they say how, anyway? They say that anyway. Yeah. Because he says no yeah. collusion Twitter, and no matter what it comes out with, you know, that's what happens. And I wonder if Robert Mueller was fired uh, by Donald Trump, could this congressional investigation rehire him? And also, is he under some kind of not client attorney privilege, but some type of legal privilege where he can't release out what he found. Because if he was just no. fired, could he do I, much I, like James Comey I, I, and just write I, a book? I think it would. I think it would move past 
bypass that if he were to suddenly fire him after the Democrats are in charge in the House. I think they'd just go ahead and move forward with impeachment proceedings. I don't know where it would go, how far it would go, if the Senate would, you know, uh, try him or, or what would happen. But I don't see where uh, Congress would really have any choice to move past the investigative part of this thing. If he were to suddenly shut the whole thing down, man, that's obstruction of justice as blatant yeah. as it can be. Yeah. He's already practically committing it now on television, openly dangling pardons and call it a, a, a personally attacking all these people and firing people left and right that won't do what he says about this investigation. And it just gets worse and worse and worse. And I, at some point, yeah. <laughs> it'll, it'll, it'll have to move past Bob Mueller. It'll have to. Well, that's what I mean. I, I don't think firing him at this point does him any good. The only way that he might could have used that as a move is if the Republicans would have held the House and there was no recourse um, electorally. Yeah, but to, David, you know, to have a new body. David, I didn't say it would do him good or bad, actually. What I'm saying is it will reach a point where Trump really is so cornered uh, if this keeps on that he's not going to have anything to lose by, by firing him, and he's going to hope that. Uh, Enough Republicans go along with him that he can just get away with. It. I, mean, I mean, what else could he do? If you're in his shoes and he's closing in on you and, you know, all of a sudden he spills the beans on you, what, what do you do? Yeah. I bet, I, you, the line, I another... bet you the line the line that crossed, though, is when a family member uh, gets charged here. That's the line. Yeah, yeah well, I agree get, with that. I think that... Kind of Oh, a question there. Yeah, if okay. Yeah, okay, let's say that it looks like that most of the investigation centers around Donald Trump Jr., you know, meetings and that kind of thing. Now, those could have been the direction of Donald Trump, but if there's a way that Donald Trump uh, Trump Jr. can take the fall for um his father, do you think that that's something that could end up um you know, letting the process go through. They, they feel like, oh, they're going to get one of us. Okay, let him get Donald Trump Jr. He's not in office. He takes the fall for daddy, um, that kind of thing. Oh, I don't know. I think – I just feel like, like Tim, I think that he'll feel, uh, you know, very threatened and cornered and um, and react in some way, like – <laughs> like you're like fire everybody or saying I just I I, I am uh, I think if if they get that close to the family and start I just, I just think that's gonna he's gonna feel cornered and he's gonna do something um, I don't think he's gonna go for oh we'll let Don Jr. take the fall unless he can then pardon him of course he could do that I suppose. Yeah, but uh, that, I mean that's, that would look pretty uh, bad. I just don't know what happen here. Yeah, it would be for the family. Yeah, I don't think any of us know what happened. In their reputation, already I think, so bad. I think that's the mastery of Mueller is that nobody knows what's going to happen. He's been, you know, he's keeping everything so tight that, um, you know, nobody really knows what's going to happen. So he can, 
you know, roll this out exactly the way he wants to. And uh, it's really uh, something to to watch. He's pretty amazing, really. Yeah, it, Tim, don't you think that probably infuriates him, too, um, that oh, the yeah. Oh, yeah. Trump presidency has been inundated with leaks, and he complains about all the leaks and acts like the leaks are treasonous and this, that, and the other, and the Mueller investigation has almost been leak-free. Well, that's the difference then. A guy that knows what exactly what he's doing, a man who has made a career of public service, a man who believes in exactly the letter of the law and has surrounded himself in that investigation with like-minded career public servants who uh, not only believe in doing it things the right way, but actually putting them into practice. He, that's the difference in putting together a, a tight ship and putting together whatever this administration is supposed to be. It, it's almost like, uh, yeah, I like him on television. Let me hire him. You know, that sort of thing. Like the... We we have a Fox News lady. I mean, a Fox News from Fox and Friends is about to become the United oh, Nations ambassador <laughs> for crying out. There is the difference in personnel we are talking about. These people just they 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 just <laughs> they don't know anything about governing. They don't know anything about how to conduct themselves in official Washington. They don't know how to conduct themselves around the media. They don't know how to do much of anything. Well, it was inevitable that Russian would leak uh, like a sieve. Isn't that right? Yeah, and I think uh, Ship of Fools may come to mind when you're talking about um, what this administration may look like. Um, And recently I listened to a book by Rick Wilson called Everything Trump Touches Dies. And um, he kind of methodically goes through just every single person that gets involved in Trump's orbit, just their career's ruined or or their reputation's ruined or whatever it may be. And it seems like it's happening again. And let's kind of segue into another part of all this drama. In the past um, week, it's really intensified, although we'd heard rumors before this, that General John Kelly, chief of staff, um, is on the way out. He'll be out by the end of the year. And that he and Donald Trump aren't even on speaking terms. Um, this thing has devolved pretty fast. Catherine, my, I guess my question is, I say it's devolved. Did it ever really even start from a good place? I, I don't think so. I, I think the problem is, is that, you know, the president wants to be his own chief of staff, his own uh, media person, his own – he wants to run the show. And um, he doesn't know how, as we've, you know, clearly seen. Um, but that doesn't matter to him. He wants, you know, he doesn't want anyone telling him what to do or what not to do. I don't know if you, any of you heard the Rex Tillerson story this week. He made some comments about, about Trump at a speech in Denver or something this week and uh, saying that, you know, he would tell him that he couldn't do things because, it was against the law or it was against treaties and he just didn't want to hear it. And afterwards, Trump responded by calling Rex Tillerson dumb as a rock, 
Okay, I don't have a lot of – I'm not a big fan of Rex Tillerson, but I don't think he's dumb as a rock. <laughs> so I just don't think – I, I don't think our president wants um, anyone to tell him anything. So being his chief of staff must be extremely difficult because the job is to, you know, guide him through the um, – through the – you know, complicated system of government and, you know, support his staff and how the staff interacts with, with Trump. But I don't, I just, same with media, you know, he wants to just be his own press secretary and do it all through Twitter. So I just think it's very difficult. It must be really awful for someone like uh, Kelly to try to deal with that. I mean, no wonder they're not speaking. Yeah. And I, Oh yeah, and I want I want to get back to uh, General Kelly, but uh, some things you you know, mentioned about Rex Tillerson, uh, I find it just appalling that Donald Trump would insult somebody's intelligence. Um, shouldn't make fun of anybody, <laughs> even if you do have a lot of a certain <laughs> trait. But when you don't have a lot of that trait, best not to pick on other people for your perceiving them to lack that trait. Secondly, and maybe a little bit more serious. Um, I think he probably thinks he's dumb because of his southern accent, and I think that's coming through with Donald Trump, his kind of New York bias, because he said some kind of the same things about Jeff Sessions, and considering yeah. that a lot of Donald Trump's base is in the South, I want, and probably the folks in the South that will speak with a little bit more of a southern accent than others, I wonder when they're going to catch on to this guy and say, this guy's kind of a, a regionalist, and I don't know if that's a term, but, you know, like somebody that looked down upon people from the South, um, and, and yet he uses them. And, and so uh, if, if they ever catch on, um, there goes a ton of the base. But, but back to General Kelly. Uh, Tim, are you surprised it lasted this long? You know, I am. Uh, I, I, I was just sitting here thinking while you were talking that I didn't see how General Kelly's managed to stay this long. Uh, you know, when he came in, he was the person whom everyone or hoped might bring some measure of, what, credibility to the West Wing? Is, is that a good way to put it? Uh, unfortunately, he failed. He started out okay. I, I remember he, he got rid of Steve Bannon and Sebastian Gorka right off the start, got the alt-riders out of there, the bright barters. I thought, all right. Um, uh, this was not known for a long time, but he and uh, the Secretary of Defense, uh, James uh, Mattis, uh, had agreed that both of them would never be out of Washington at the same time so that one of them could stay there and keep an eye on Trump uh, to keep him from doing something or saying something crazy, if at all possible. <laughs> uh, and that's why I think that that the Secretary of Defense is also on the way out. If you're friendly with Kelly in the White House right now, then you're persona non grata. Of course, I'm shedding some crocodile tears for Kelly. You remember how he talked and acted about Representative Frederica Wilson with that situation yeah. with her? And uh, 
so you know he he's not without his faults as well. Oh yeah. Uh, but um, what really got Kelly on the way out, guys, was John Bolton got in. Uh, Kelly should have never allowed that to happen. Bolton, I think, has essentially filled the space that Kelly was in, and that left Kelly and Trump to the point they, they don't even speak to each other now. Uh, Bolton is standing squarely between them. And uh, so General Kelly and I guess the Secretary of Defense will be the next two casualties in Trump world. Oh, yeah, and I think actually when Democrats take power in Congress, that may change the complexion of some of the things, too. And some of maybe more of the true believer types of Trump uh, may get disillusioned when he, um, not in him, but in the process, in the process of the swamp, um, when they can get even less done. And so that may happen. Now, so John Kelly goes on the way out, and everyone assumed it was going to be Nick Ayers to take his spot. And, and they say that Nick Ayers had been openly lobbying for this job and then just today, it was announced that he wants to make his way back to Georgia. He's got young children, and he's not interested in the job. Um, Catherine, I, I don't know what happened to the children's ages between you know today and a few weeks ago when he was lobbying. Um, could it be something else? Uh, you think? I think it could be. That's kind of get on the sinking ship. He's a pretty um, – I mean, I don't – have much, uh, you know, uh, love for him or anything, but he's a pretty uh, strategic guy, and I, I think he looked at, he looked at the the landscape and was like, yeah, this isn't a good place for me to be. Let me go back to Georgia, where my buddy uh, Kemp is going to be the governor. I'm sure I can find a sweet position there. Well, I have a question. Okay. Why wouldn't he just stay with Pence? Exactly what That's I a thought. Good question. I don't think he even makes it back to Georgia because I think plenty of children have been raised in D.C., Northern Virginia, and Southern Maryland. Um, you know, I, I don't it, think it, it's a, a toxic I'm, childhood I'm just, environment. And I'm, he's going to stay with Pence. And what does Georgia have to do well, with Well, why it? not? If you're making a calculated political move, it seems like staying with the vice president, who to this point has not been touched by any of the scandal and stands to gain everything, including the Oval Office, if something happens to Trump. And guess what that makes Nick Ayers then? The chief of staff. Why wouldn't he just stay with him? Well, he might feel like he's <laughs> lobbied so hard. That, that he can't really say no and stay with Pence. You know, it might be like a, you know, strategic decision that he doesn't want to stay, he doesn't want to go to Trump, but if he stays, he's going to, people are going to wonder why. I'm just, it's just Yeah, well, I mean, I don't know. I think people know why, and they probably, a lot of the Republicans, yeah. a couple of the Republicans would know why. Yeah, they don't agree with Trump a lot of times anyway. Some of them stomach him. Some of them have spoken out against him. And so, therefore, he might be better off, you know, if if Donald Trump sees his term through and Mike Pence is never president, then he still would be 
the vice president or the chief of staff of the vice president, which wasn't a total, you know, media nightmare and disaster every week uh, on the news. And so, therefore, that would help him. And, of course, if Donald Trump does move on at some point for either a push or a decision on his own, then he would become chief of staff most likely uh, with a president. Right. Pence, you know, even if that was a year until he, you know, ran and possibly lost re-election, um, whatever it may be. And so it seems like the better play is just stay with what you've got because in this situation, the presidency is just such a mess that you just don't want to be attached to it. Um, it's kind of like the opposite of the show Veep. Uh, on that show, the, the vice presidential staff is uh, kind of clownish and uh, the presidential uh, staff of the early there's years. One other uh, it was more organized, and that's the opposite. Tim? There's one other angle. Catherine, have you heard any scuttlebutt that heirs might come back here and try to make some money, like starting up a consulting firm or, so, you know, use his, his newfound celebrity to do something like that? Have you heard any rumors about that down there? I haven't heard anything. I haven't heard anything, but I can certainly imagine that that would be a, a path. I just, I just really wonder if, if because he has been so outspoken about wanting this job that now that he doesn't want it, he just can't stay with Pence. I mean, I think it's like a, mm-hmm. um, a professional um, choice. Um, well, David, uh, what about this money-making angle? He wouldn't be the first political person to cash his chips out, right? Well, he already well, did but, but that the money once, right? He was, a, he was a consultant before and made a lot of money. And so he yeah, he'd make a lot that more back now. up again. <laughs> yeah. He'd make a lot more now. A lot more. Well, and but then he can actually see it through. And then in two or three years, if he ended up doing a stint with uh, Mike Pence as the interim president, if you will, he could still cash out because, you, you know, y'all know – Kids cost a lot more as they get older. If he's got young kids, uh, the money angle is going to come in down the road when uh, they need cars and college, uh, not diapers and formula. But let me go ahead and switch gears, and we're going to welcome on our guest at this time back for at least the second time, Dr. Michael Bitzer. Welcome, Dr. Bitzer. Bitzner. Good to be with you, as always. Hey, good to have you. Um, well, we want to talk to you about a lot of North Carolina questions, and we kind of looked at this thing and divided it up topic by topic. And the biggest thing going on is that congressional uh, district, the ninth congressional district there in North Carolina, and Tim's got a whole set of questions he wants to get to <laughs> first, so I'm going to pass it to Tim. Tim? <laughs> okay. Well, good evening, Doctor, and welcome to the Kudzu Vine. You are suddenly in the middle of the political universe, as states go. <laughs> so uh, this this thing with the ninth district just gets weirder and weirder and weirder. Um, but isn't the major question here? What did Mark Harris know, and when did he know it? I, I think that's ultimately going to be the point. Uh, the entire investigation, I think we have a pretty good idea of what has been going on in particularly Bladen County, perhaps in uh, Robison County. There may be other counties that potentially could fall into this mix as well. 
So I would not be surprised if, like Kudzu, this scandal doesn't grow quick and spread wide within the Mm -hmm. district uh, and perhaps Mm -hmm. outside. I I think, you know, both sides are taking this to their political advantage, if at all possible. But I think the ultimate in question will be, you know, the, the famous Howard Baker question, when did Mark Harris know and what did he know? Uh, in regards mm-hmm. to this, it's it's hard for me to imagine a uh, political consulting group not at least informing a candidate, particularly one who benefited as much as was in the May primary for Mark Harris, that uh, mm-hmm. continuation of a particular process uh, regarding absentee by mail ballots wasn't still going on in the general election. So I, I, I think, mm-hmm. you know, we'll, we'll find out what the evidentiary hearing by the State Board of Elections uh, produces, mm-hmm. but I think that's going to be a continuation of the questions surrounding this particular controversy. Yeah, and, and you touched on something I wanted to ask you about. I mean, all the talk has been about, you know, the November election, but as I recall, uh, Pastor Harris uh ousted the first incumbent Republican House member that was beaten in a primary this year. I, don't hold me to that, but I believe that, Representative Hedinger was the first one. That's correct. Is there, is, is, is there equally as much talk up there that perhaps that's why Representative Hedinger lost? Well, if you look at Bladen County and the absentee by mail ballots coming out of the Republican May primary, you would find Mm -hmm. that Mark Harris won with 437 votes to, I believe, 17 for a sitting incumbent, (laughs) non-scandal, fairly popular across the district uh, Republican. Now, generally, in, in the study of of congressional elections, incumbents tend to be the most vulnerable when they are either scandal-ridden or running for their first uh, re-election. And certainly that, that was kind of my thinking was, well, maybe he just didn't make enough headway in the district to really prove himself as someone uh, who could represent the district. Uh, Going back Mm -hmm. two years, it was a very competitive and close primary election as well. So a rematch was not unheard of, and I think a lot of us really didn't dive deep into seeing what exactly went on with that kind of an upset and how did things play out in terms of the primary and those absentee by mail. 2020 hindsight is certainly something to – to have an advantage with, but I think we'll be paying a little bit closer attention in terms of how things do play out in the future when there's an upset like that. Mm-hmm. Now, is there any chance, realistically, <clears throat> that Dallas was just operating on his own without the knowledge by the Harris campaign? of the shenanigans that he was involved in. I don't know that we can definitively say at this point that there is 
a, a very top-heavy connection. I think, you know, a lot of the reports that we're seeing is that, indeed, uh, Representative Pittenger alerted several folks, both in D.C. and in Raleigh with the state party and with the national party about what happened in the primary. I think that the investigation is going to have to show where did the buck stop. And it's hard mm-hmm. for me to believe, having studied uh, campaigns and elections, that certainly consultants uh, tend to make some decisions without the candidate's knowledge. But when it comes to a ground game operation, when it comes to a distinct strategy using a vote method, uh, you know, it, it, it's fairly well known that people know all throughout the campaign, including the candidate. I can't verify that with any uh, veracity at this point, but it would be surprising to me if the candidate didn't know as opposed to the candidate knowing, because that's generally what we tend to see happen. Mm-hmm. Now, the state elections board is due, um, I believe, on December 21st to hold a public hearing on all of this. At the conclusion of that hearing, will they make a decision then on whether to proceed to a new election or not? I think certainly after the evidentiary hearing, you're either going to see a decision made or perhaps the board go into executive closed session, discuss it, and then come out with a decision. I, I, I don't think that this is going to be dragged out very long. And if the evidence is overwhelming in terms of the evidentiary hearing, however that is presented, I think the state board will take it upon itself. They have to make a decision one way or the other. They can either certify the election, send Mark Harris uh, to Washington, or choose to uh, use one of four criteria to say there's enough here that warrants a uh, redo of the general election with all three of the candidates, uh, Democrat Dan McCready, Republican Mark Harris, and the Libertarian candidate Tim Scott, uh, uh, Scott, mm-hmm. and you know mm-hmm. that 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 could potentially play out in um, the beginning of the year, perhaps into early spring. If it's a full-blown mm-hmm. uh, election that the, the that the U.S. House of Representatives demands, then we're talking much later into the spring after a primary and then another general election. So you're saying that there's a pretty good likelihood now. With all things considered, that the ninth district will have no representation when Congress convenes in January. I, I think that's a fairly safe bet at this point. I, I just think that the the evidence has been mounting so so sufficiently that there's enough questions in the air now. The 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 big question is, what do five members of the state board believe is taint? And how did that impact the outcome of the election? Doesn't necessarily have to mm-hmm. change the end results, but is there mm-hmm. sufficient enough irregularities that taint the potential outcome of the election? Five members of the nine member state board of elections could choose then to call well, for a new general election. Well, let me uh I'll piggyback on that by throwing out some stats here that I'm looking at. There were 1,341 total absentee ballot requests in Bladen County that you've mentioned. 684 of them were returned, 
And of those 684, 592 of those were personally turned in by Dallas himself. Based on just that one thing, wouldn't you say that is just almost damning evidence that something really bad was amiss and a new election would be called for? I think a statistics uh, would determine that that is a very high probability of something amiss. Uh, I'm a social scientist, so I, I fairly I tend to fairly stay away from value judgments. But if statistics mm-hmm. and percentages indicate something is going on, then that's that's where I tend to fall on on the spectrum. And I have one more question, and several people have asked me about this, and I just wouldn't certain, mm-hmm. so I thought I'd, I'd hit the expert with it tonight. If a new election is called for, mm-hmm. is there some prescription written into law for this situation, like a timeline for such an undertaking? Uh, uh, because this this is pretty odd <laughs> it, it is, is and, and anything, this is, is there this anything is, that covers it yes uh statutory authority uh in in the um north carolina general statutes it lays out the steps and all of the parameters by which uh, the state board of elections needs to follow for uh, calling a new election i actually wrote something uh, at my blog oldnorthstatepolitics.com and it kind of lays out a series of questions and the steps that both the state board of elections would have to follow in terms of their authority. But if the U.S. House of Representatives decides to insert itself, what its steps would be as well. But yes, there is a process. Uh, it would need to take into account the printing of the ballots, the mailing of absentee ballots, uh, setting the general election then for that time period. But everybody who is registered within the district would be eligible, even if they didn't vote in November. They could still vote in this election. We would have the same three candidates. And basically, it would operate like a normal election, but it's anything like a normal election that we would be having. And a final question. What if Representative, or or excuse me, if Reverend Harris were uh, caught up in this to the point that he were to have to withdraw, how would that proceed? Would the Republican Party be able to name a replacement candidate for the new special election? It it, it is my understanding that if uh, Mark Harris did withdraw his name from the ballot, that the state party would be allowed to uh, place uh, a replacement uh, to stand for election in, in the ninth. What what a what a headache! My goodness, <laughs> I'm rubbing my head here thinking about this thing. With that, I'm going to um, thank you for all of that and pass it over to Catherine for some uh, for some more questions on a different topic. Catherine, sure. Hey, thank you, thank you so much, Tim, and thank you for being on with us tonight. We appreciate it. Um, yeah. We want. I wanted to ask you um, about. North Carolina, Michigan, and Wisconsin Republicans are trying to remove powers from some of, from their governors, and I'm just wondering what your thoughts about that. I guess North Carolina was the first one to do it 
We actually did it in Georgia on the, for the lieutenant governor many, many years ago. And mm-hmm. um, I just wonder if I've I've seen some reporting on it. It seems like a it just seems crazy that they're able to do that. But what are your thoughts, and what do you think the backlash will be if there is any? Well, North Carolina experienced this when uh, two years ago now, when Roy Cooper won a hotly and bitterly divided uh, gubernatorial race, and then against then sitting incumbent Republican Governor. Uh, Pat McCrory. Uh, the legislature was still controlled by the Republicans by a supermajority. And with the notion of legislative supremacy, they decided to start looking at powers and appointments that the North Carolina governor had and start to reevaluate those. So there, there is precedent uh, for both what Wisconsin and Michigan is doing in terms of Democrats winning an election and Republicans in the legislature uh, perhaps uh, adding retribution for those wins against the executive branch. You know, this, this is classic uh, power politics uh, when it comes mm-hmm. to separate institutions having to share political power. Some institutions choose not to share as much power as, as others would. And I think it's indicative of how polarized uh, in, in at least state politics we have become. We've talked about polarization at the national level. It is happening at both the state and local level. It's kind of filtered down into everyday politics. And I think this is just, you know, any opportunity that one party sees to take advantage of, of the other party, you know, making a win, but being able to uh, through constitutional or other means, strip power. Uh, it is unfortunate, but that's where we are. That you know, we we don't have a gracious loser mentality anymore. Right. I'm thinking mm-hmm. of somebody like a Bush who was defeated by Bill Clinton and really made the transition something to say, "Look, I'm I'm here for you, and you are now our president, uh, and and I want to support in in whatever way I can." So. I think this this mentality of polarized politics has taken to a, a unfortunate level when it comes to retribution for simply winning uh, an electoral contest. And was there any backlash in North Carolina when it happened? It, it, there, there certainly has been, and uh, the the governor took the legislature to court. Uh, over several of the issues. He won some, he lost some. Uh, most recent example was the uh, State Board of Elections and Ethics Enforcement, which the Republicans put up for a constitutional amendment. It was soundly defeated. Uh, they also put up an amendment regarding judicial appointments, taking that power away from the governor and, and sharing it with the legislature. That went down to defeat as well. So I, I think it's kind of a mixed bag in terms right. of how far ahead of their skis Republicans and legislatures can can push the envelope and not sense some kind of retribution at the polls perhaps two, four years later. Okay, great. Thank you so much. I'm going to pass it back to David for okay. the final round. All right. Well, uh, 
Dr. Bitzer, um, kind of the final thing I want to talk to you about was the congressional district lines in North Carolina across the state. Um, I think it kind of got maybe washed away outside of North Carolina, uh, but there was a court case in which the lines were seen as unconstitutional, and but they, they I guess, and you can explain this better, they deemed that there was not enough time to um, use those congressional district lines. To kind of explain how that all came to be, and then when will the new lines be drawn? <laughs> In the midst of everything <laughs> else <laughs> that the state is currently experiencing, yes. Uh, we had a court case in the early fall that uh, shook everybody to, uh, to their core in regards to uh, striking down the congressional districts based on partisan gerrymandering. And this is something typically the courts have not engaged in. They said that's a political question. That is not for the courts to decide. But the, a three-judge panel weighed in and said there are some real issues, primarily the First Amendment, uh, freedom of speech, and the equal protection of the law, and decided that uh, after some, some deliberation to hold off on redrawing the lines because it could have been, well, we're going to redraw the lines, and then for November's election, we're going to use those as primary elections for congressional districts. And then we'll have a general election sometime about now uh, during the holidays. And everybody in North Carolina just went, oh, please, dear God, no. And so they put a <laughs> stay on their order. And, but, but we haven't yet heard that particular issue surface again because we're in the midst of the 9th Congressional District. I, I think nobody had predicted what would happen in the 9th. And I think it may just put everything kind of on hold until that uh, contest is settled, and then a revisitation of the entire 13 congressional districts in the state. Remember that we're going to be going through redistricting in a very short time period in two years. Uh, once the census is done and, and we have the counts for the new state, so it, it is literally almost every year we are dealing with something in regards to redistricting in North Carolina. It, it keeps us on our toes, needless to say, but some of us are getting kind of, can we just not have a rest from redistricting? I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. Well, I mean, and, and let me see. So if they did uh, use the lines in 2020, then they would have to redraw and have new lines based on the census in 2022. Are they thinking Correct. about foregoing that process and just waiting for the census? <laughs> Your guess is as good as mine at this point. I, I, I hate I hate to sound uh, flippant and, and, and unknowing, but I honestly don't know where anybody thinks this is this is going to be headed. I mean, if if we're getting to the point where these district lines only stand for a year or two years, uh, there may be an argument. Uh, to, to hold off until those new numbers come in. But then the argument is, well, we're operating under unconstitutional and illegal lines. And all of this has got to go up to the U.S. Supreme Court with Justice Kennedy's retirement. You know, the, the big question is, what will Justice Roberts look, Chief Justice Roberts look at, at these arguments and think about uh, gerrymandering and the partisan nature of it? I just think there are so many moving gears and wheels 
with this whole issue that if anybody does have a crystal ball that can predict the future, I'd really love to talk to them because mine has been cracked for some time. <laughs> so, so basically, congressional candidates that might be interested in running, um, they really are kind of frozen until something gets decided about this. I go take it. I, I, yeah, I, I think that that's the case. And, you know, uh, on top of everything else, the news is breaking now that perhaps President Trump's going to consider Mark Meadows out of the 11th Congressional District as a possible chief of staff candidate. I mean, we may have two special elections uh, oh in gosh. North Carolina next year. Oh, so, uh, you know, it's just, you know, we, we're not having enough fun here in the Tar Heel State, so why not throw <laughs> one more on? <laughs> Well, let me ask you, I saw that on Political Wire just now about him. Um, is that 11th Congressional District, is it even slightly persuadable, or is it pretty solidly Republican? It, it's pretty solidly Republican because uh, what the Republicans did in the legislature was, it was what I call the Asheville appendage to uh, the 10th Congressional District. That absorbed a lot of Democrats out of Asheville and made the 11th much more Republican in that nature. So it's it's a likely Republican uh, seat, uh, but the battle is going to be over who's going. If if Mark Meadows takes, and this is all highly speculative, uh, if he takes the position, you know, would who who would be running in that particular district? I think that's just again one of the unknowns that we'll face the new year here in North Carolina with. Oh, definitely. And I just ask it for conjecture, because if I were somebody that had a, a good paying job that, uh, you know, you got rehired from every two year period, I wouldn't take that chief of staff job. But that's just me, because uh, it looks like a bit of chaos. Well, um, Dr. Bitzer, we know you need to get on to your next appointment. Is there anywhere that people would like could read you or hear you or what have you that you'd like to promote? Yeah, I've, I've got a blog and it is Old North statepolitics.com, and I've written uh, quite extensively on the 9th Congressional District most recently, and then uh, my Twitter account is at BowtiePolitics. All right. We'll be sure to look those up, and as things progress in North Carolina, we may call on you again. Glad to help out anytime. Thank you, sir. Yes, sir. Have a good evening. You too. You too. All right. Uh, North Carolina, fascinating state always because it is one of the more purple states, yet it's not very elastic. It's one of those real, you know, states I've heard that that there are not many swing voters, although there's huge swaths of the, you know, 40-something and 40-something Democrats and Republicans. So a lot going on there. Um, well, let me let's bring it back to another state that's probably the most similar to North Carolina for the last few minutes of the show, and that is Georgia. And um, I, I don't think we're going to get to cover everybody's future, but um, Stacey Abrams may have had her first speech since she, um, you know, I guess we're going to say accepted the results of the election. I mean, I'm not sure the exact uh, term to use, but um, she, she spoke out and said that, you know, she definitely seemed to be looking at another office. Um, Catherine, um, what do you think her her next move might be? It is really hard to, it's really hard for me to guess. I haven't seen her uh, Mm -hmm. well before the election. So I don't, and I I haven't really 
talk to anybody close to her about what her plans might be. But um, I know she really wants to be governor. That seems to be the, her her primary goal. She's still young, so um, you know she could run for senate and then come back after that and run for governor. But um, it's hard to say. Um, I would love to see her run against David Perdue. I think that would be a um, a good challenge to him. I think we could we could probably we might be able to win that. Um, depend on what the political landscape looks like in a year or so, I suppose. Yes, Tim, your thoughts. Mm. Well, um, I hope she runs for the Senate. Um, the types of race that she just ran, I think that race, that same race, exactly the same kind of race would really, really, really be interesting to watch in the presidential election year when even more people are coming out to vote, especially in, in, the, in the metro area. I, I, I hope she runs for the Senate. I know she has expressed in the past to many people, including to me, that she she really would like to um, do something in the state of Georgia rather than federal office. But I, I, I wish she would run. I think she would have a golden opportunity to win the race because I, I believe right now uh, the way the state is trending, we are going to be um, – we may be a toss-up race in the 2020 election. I, I, I wouldn't be afraid to predict that I know we're going to be a battleground state, but I think the race for president is going to go maybe a couple of points in either direction. Or am I am, am I uh, shooting the moon here, David? Am I shooting for the moon? No, I, I do think that Georgia, along with Texas and Arizona, have moved into those swing state category and maybe replaced even in Ohio. Uh, I mean, you're still going to have some of your usual suspects, and they're like North Carolina, like Florida, like Michigan, um, Pennsylvania, states like that. But but it's people are saying that maybe one or all three of those states, depending on what goes on, uh, may be more attractive than, say, Ohio. Of course, a lot of that will depend on who the nominee is, um, to which one makes more sense. Better O'Rourke, Texas makes more sense. Sherrod Brown, Ohio makes more sense. Uh, things like that. But but I tell you, um, if she thinks how typically cycles go and um, Donald Trump's running for re-election, possibly, or Mike Pence or some other entity is running uh, under a disgraced Republican banner, then that would – and somebody that then David Perdue had um, hugged himself up pretty closely to, that becomes a pretty uh, you know competitive, winnable race. Senate, and if the Democrats take control of the presidency, keep control of the House, possibly win control of the Senate, then typically those mid-year elections don't do well for Democrats. Now, of course, the 2022 governor's election should be on what people have as a vision for the state of Georgia and should be about Brian Kemp's performance as governor, but unfortunately – um, all politics has become national. It's the opposite of what Tim O'Neill said. It's how people feel about the White House. Um, and so if that's the case, she might run a great campaign, really do a great turnout operation, 
But if the political winds aren't like they are this year, then she'd be pushing against those, and that would be hard to overcome. Also, four years is a long time. If she decided, oh, that that didn't look right in 22 and 22, I'll run in 2026. Okay, how are you going to stay relevant? Because people forget you and new faces come on the scene. I wonder if she really wants to be governor, should she not do what Roy Barnes did and go back into the legislature, possibly even the other body of the legislature? Um, you know, he lost for governor in 1990. He was a senator. He ran and won a House seat, served in the House for about six years, made some new connections and contacts, um, and won in 98. Um Catherine, One more do you think there'd be a, if she really <laughs> thinks about governor, uh, would it be possible to then maybe find a state senate seat and run for that? That's a really interesting uh, thought. I hadn't mm-hmm. even thought about that. Um, mm-hmm. I, I just want, I, I mean, I think that would be um, probably smart, but I wonder how that looks. Does it look like a, um, like she gave up? On bigger office, I don't know. I'm not saying that says, but I wonder if it might be perceived as that. I'm just one. Um, just a yeah, thought. David. Tim, David, I have a please. question. There's another angle here. There's about a fifty-fifty shot that in during the 2020 election cycle, we're going to be in the midst of a recession. Would that not prompt? someone like her to take a really hard look at that Senate seat because it would be the ideal time then to go for it, wouldn't it? Yes. I, I mean, I think that that, that is a – David Perdue is not as strong a candidate as um, um, Johnny Eisen. It's probably a race that will get a lot of attention and funding because if you look at the targets – there are a few better targets, but you need multiple seats to take the Senate. So you know the money's going to be there. She's a good fundraiser, um, and you got to stay relevant. Another thing that she would have the advantage of doing is she is so um, broadly uh, you know, talented as far as understanding a lot of different facets of public life and govern, uh, government and whatnot, and CNN's right here in Atlanta. Could she not – do like Bakari Sellers, who was in the South Carolina State House, and then become, get on CNN a lot. That would help keep her relevant and her face in front of people, even if she spoke more on national issues, um, which would then help her if she decided to run against David Perdue. Um, because that, I know it's coming up pretty quick, but that could be something short term make a little money, stay relevant um, in front of the cameras, um, and then um, you could launch your governor or your Senate bid. Um, when the time is right, which I guess probably close to this summer is when you pretty much have to decide about that, given the amount of yeah. money and the, the um, groundwork you have to do for running a statewide campaign, although she would have the benefit of having uh, just ended another statewide campaign. And it sounds like her campaign manager is going to stay on a staff, I guess not her staff, but a staff of a voter project. Hmm. David, are you there? I think we just lost David. We might have lost our feed because it's after 6.30. <clears throat> yeah, 
But well, we lost. Well, I think we well, we dropped David. So we'll we'll go ahead and no, call well, it a night and okay. say. Oh, there you are. <laughs> yeah, I'm here. I don't. You, well, yeah, Tim. I think that's the right call. It's it's right after um the an hour's up. So let's let's uh we'll put a pin in it. We'll get back at it next week. Good okay, night, good night, night. y'all. Not everybody. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice.